When I was a young man, not too long ago, I enjoyed greatly studying ancient Greek philosophy. Modern philosophy was just too stodgy for me. Didn't enjoy that. Medieval philosophy I like now, but at the time I didn't. When I was a young man, I was all about ancient Greek philosophy, in part because it was this weird conglomeration of part philosophy, part idolatrous theology, they were wrong, part archaic science, and part archaic mathematics. But it all blended together to a rather exciting read if you could get through it. And one of the interesting things that you would see in ancient Greek philosophy in particular is they would tend to imply and infer motivation into inanimate objects. I don't know if you've ever studied the ancient Greeks, but they would say things like rocks want to get to the center of the earth, and that's why they fall to the ground, right? Uh, they didn't have a concept of gravity, and they noticed that rocks always seem to fall to the ground. So that must be, well, rocks want to be at the center of the earth. Or fire, you can hold a candle that way, but it always goes up. Well, why does it always go up? Well, it must be that flames want to ascend to the heavens because that's where the major flames are, the, the stars, right? But then they got into something rather interesting. What is the end, the direction, the purpose of human beings? Rocks have an end, a desire to go down because they want to be at that center of the earth. Flames have that desire to go up because they want to get in the stars. But what's the end or purpose or direction for humans? And so they proposed a vague idea called the good. Human beings are driven towards, they have what's called a telos, an end that drives them towards the good. And I think they understood something about us as human beings. Human beings, by our very nature, are driven toward ends. We see some vision of that which is good, and it drives us, it compels us, it moves us towards it. And whatever we decipher is the greatest end is what we will direct our lives towards. Today, we're going to continue in our sermon series on finding our identity as the beloved of God. We've been talking about the nature of discipleship and talking about how we as disciples have to begin by recognizing that we are the beloved of God. That's the fundamental reality of our identity. And we've given a brief definition. Some of you probably have holes in it. That's fine. It's a definition of what it means to be the beloved. As the beloved, we're chosen children of God blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. As the beloved of God, we're the chosen children of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. Last week, Kyle talked about the nature of being broken, that as Christians, we follow the way of the cross. There is no way around the breaking that occurs, but we always have a hope a recognition that a breaking occurs for the sake of resurrection. Today, I want to look at resurrection hope, and particularly the direction towards which resurrection leads us. And I'd like to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11, this profound passage in the scriptures. And I want to look at two things. 
First, I want to remind us that there is no resurrection hope. There is no resurrection life outside of union with our Lord Jesus. I would like to do a short theological refresher course on why union with Christ is so important for each and every one of us. It's not a stale doctrine. It's the very heart of our faith. And then second, I want to look at what it means to be made alive to God. Paul sets up a dichotomy that doesn't allow a third. We are, either, we are now dead to sin, which meant at one time we were living to what? We were living to sin. And now through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, we've been resurrected to a life to God. We are creatures that are directed by ends. We have a towardness inherent within us. And at the very heart of resurrection life is that we have been resurrected forward, God. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter six, verses five through 11. But let's begin by looking particularly at the language that you're going to see here about union with our Lord. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one, has, one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, most of us very likely did not grow up hearing much about union with Christ. Many of us were not raised in the church at all. So we heard no theology, or except for maybe what you, you know, picked up from the television or from that one time your grandma took you to VBS. Or if you were raised in the church, you were likely raised in the church in the latter half of the 20th century, probably in the United States. We have some people that weren't, but most of us were. And I don't know what happened. I haven't done the history of it, but somehow or another, we heard a lot of words about uh death to sin and resurrection and, and new life and the forgiveness of sins, but you didn't hear a whole lot about union with our Lord Jesus. I was raised in wonderful churches and I probably heard about it and I just didn't hear it. You know, we all have to prepare for that when our teenagers come to, back to us as adults and say, you never taught me that. Yes, I did. You weren't listening, right? Um, that, <laughs> that might be the case, but I don't really remember hearing a whole lot about union. But you know, if you were to talk to the Puritans or you were to talk to the reformers, or you were to talk to the medievals, or you were to talk to the patristics, which is just another way of saying the early church, all they talked about was union with our blessed Lord. If you were gonna talk about death to sin, you had to talk about what? You're united to the one who died in your place. If you were to talk about resurrection, you were to talk about what? You are united to the one who was raised in your place. All over scripture, we have images, 
in analogies that's grasping for language and description of something that escapes us, something that is beyond our categories to fully understand, that our Lord, the eternal Lagos, the one who was and is and is to come, the second person of the Trinity, God himself took on human flesh, and that when we place our faith in him, the Holy Spirit unites us to his humanity. He hides us in Christ. He clothes us in Christ. He grafts us to Christ like a vine or a branch to the vine. These are all words that are pointing at something, reaching for something that's beyond our categories to explain that in the economy of God, in his great plan for existence, he said, listen, you're not gonna add up. You're just not going to. This whole idea that if we ought to do something, we can. The scriptures say you ought to do something and you can't. But God did for you. So the only way for that to be counted as ours is if somehow or another God himself unites us to himself. And he does that through his beloved son. This is why the hypostatic union that Jesus is fully God and fully man, it's not a secondary doctrine. Outside of that, we cannot be saved because we need to be united to the one who is perfect, the one who lived a perfectly righteous life. That's why it wasn't enough for Jesus to just descend get crucified, died, and rise again, and then go back to heaven, right? He lived a full life. Why? Because I needed someone to live a perfect life in my place, and so did you. He perfected poopy diapers, believe it or not. He perfected life even in the womb, which shows us the sanctity of life in the womb. Every moment of his life was lived in your life place. And so we see so often we think that my testimony is the most important thing about me, right? My story is what defines me. But it's interesting. The scriptures say, yes, that's important. Your story matters, right? We're all storied creatures. But the most important story about you was lived 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth lived in your place. And the beauty of the gospel is this. If you're united with him, in him, you were right there with him every step of his life. Look what our our passage today says. Look at this language of in and with. Verse five says, for if we have been united, united, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse eight, now if we have died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. What does that reveal to us? That in the eyes of God, our father, every step of Christ's life you were right there with him. And what that gives us is an assurance that on the days that we were, are not right there with God, 
on our days where we are in rebellion, in our days where we are in our doubts, in our days where we are far from his grace, in the eyes of the Father, because we are in Christ, we are right there with him. You know, I recently heard a story that might help bring this home to us. But there was a an English guy named Samuel Johnson in the 18th century. He wrote some popular works of devotion, but he's also famous for writing the first English dictionary. I know there's a lot of English teachers here. I guess he wrote the first English dictionary. And he was really well known for um, having uh, a journal that he kept, particularly around New Year's resolutions. And there's about 22 New Year's resolutions that are still remaining that he wrote. And out of the 22, 18 have a little paragraph in them that's almost identical every single year. And it read something like this. God, I'm coming to another year. As I look back upon the past year, I promise to you that I would make growth and change in becoming less you know, sinful and my pride and my arrogance, my anger, my sloth, etc. And I confess... I have not made any progress. Now, it ought to be recognized that actually Samuel's friend said he was a little hard on himself. He's a pretty great guy. But we all know that story. When we look at ourselves, I haven't made a lot of progress. And I resolve that in this coming year to do all that is within my power to grow in all of these different areas, right? And for 18 out of 22 years, same paragraph. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Right? God, if you look at me, if you look at me and my story of the past year, not a lot, some good things for sure, but I'm falling really short. But then it's interesting. There's a, there's a, a journal entry right near the end of his life, towards his death, and he knows he's dying and he's approaching his last Good Friday. And he has a journal entry and he says, God, it appears that I'm approaching my last Good Friday. And my only prayer is this, that your final judgments of me would not be contingent upon all of my days, but would rest upon that one day. That's the assurance that we have, that when we look back upon our life and we don't see a lot of resurrection we see a lot of death, that our hope is that God's judgment of us would not rest upon all of our days, but would rest upon the days of Jesus Christ that were lived perfectly for you. When he took your death upon himself, he was raised to life and he clutched you with him and brought you into everlasting life. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of resurrection life. Now, I want to look at two fruits of this with our remaining time. What we see in the Apostle Paul's writing is that if we have been united to Jesus Christ, we are now with him dead to sin and alive to God. Now, what does that mean? Let's look back at our passage. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here we see that dichotomy that I referenced earlier. There's no third option We are dead to sin and we are alive to God. Now, first, I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, first, let's talk about what does it mean when we are living towards sin? What does that mean? What does it mean when we are living contrary to our identity? Like I said earlier, we're all living towards something. We all have some end that has incredible downstream results that guide and direct our lives. And whenever we erect something above life to God, that becomes an idol. It becomes a false compass and it guides us to sin. Now that's easy to say, but let's just give a couple of examples. Because often these points that we think are the motivation of our life, they often happen early in our lives based upon trauma or loss or grief, often in our childhood, that we establish as a meaning for existing and lead us into sin. So maybe in your life, you did not receive unconditional love from a parent. Maybe you were tacitly taught again and again, that in order to get your father's attention or your mother's affection, you had to do things good for them. And if you didn't, they were absent and distant. And if that's your story, I'm sorry. But very often when that's our story, what do we do? The end towards which our life is directed is approval. We say, I never want to feel abandoned and overlooked again. So I will give myself to earning the approval and the love of others. And this has effects all over the place. If it's your story, you know exactly what it is. You give yourself to your work. You give yourself to a lover. You give yourself to finding uh, a position of authority and prominence so that others praise you. But then what happens? It never actually satisfies you. It just keeps leading you into paths of death. And you know it can't be your ultimate purpose and end. It doesn't lead to life. Or, Or maybe as a child, you felt ugly, right? And you say, I never wanna feel ugly again. So you give yourself to the hypersexualized world in which we live, and you perpetuate that in our culture. Or you give yourself to the, the, the world of appearances that we live in, where you're climbing the world of status. Or maybe at one point in your life, you felt powerless. Maybe you were... Uh, 
abused in some way, and you say, I never want to feel powerless again. And so you seek a life of control. But you know that it actually can't fill that hole in your heart where you felt powerless at that stage in your life. You know, in my life, I recognize this about myself. I was intellectually bullied my whole childhood by a friend of the family. I, I, I remember it even in kindergarten and first grade. Just anything I said was ridiculed. Anything I said was thrown under the bus. Anything I said was just not good enough. And so I gave myself to saying, no one is ever going to make me feel stupid again. No one is ever going to make me feel stupid again. And what that ended up doing was burying me in books and burying me in learning, not necessarily for the love of learning, but just so that no one would ever make me feel stupid again. And the really negative consequence was, has been in my life is if I disagree with someone, I can be rather flippant. I can think, well, that person's a dummy. All the words that were said to me can come out of my mouth later in life. All the things I was running from have formed me and actually shifted into sin in my life. Now, I don't know what that story is for you, but we all carry wounds in our hearts. And often those wounds set up some anchor out there that we are trying to avoid and trying to live towards, and it creates downstream sin in our lives. And what the apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter six is that if you are united to Jesus, that is not who you are. He's saying that's not who you are. That is not the story that defines your life. That story where you are seeking love, seeking approval, seeking power, seeking control, seeking whatever it is that you're running from or running towards, that isn't you. And so I want to ask you a question because I'm running out of time. What is that in your life? What wound are you running from? What end are you running towards that isn't God? And how has the devil co-opted the energy and passions and towardness of your life and led you into a life of sin and death? What is that for you? And hear the words of truth, that isn't who you are. Rather, our passage tells us today that if we are united to Jesus, we are dead to sin and you have been made alive to God. You know, there are a few words in the Bible less beautiful or you know, more beautiful than that. We are made alive to God. Jesus says what? I want to give life and life to the full. And what is life to the full? Life lived toward God. St. Augustine talked about this when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. The purpose of resurrection life is to live toward God and toward communion with God. Our lives are ever lived in perpetual running toward our Father in heaven. You know, children are always running towards their parents, aren't they? Right? If they're sad and scared, they need emotional regulation, so they run towards mom or dad, right? I'm scared. Help soothe me. But it's interesting. Little children, even when they're really excited 
and filled with joy, they never stay alone in that. Have you ever noticed that? They know that even that has to be brought to their parents. My little son, James, right now, you know, we have kind of a very baby-proofed basement. It's kind of got a thick carpet on it. And so he and I would just kind of hang out down there. And normally, you know, he's kind of like me. He's extroverted, but more introverted. So he'll run over and fiddle with some toys. But when he gets really excited, he runs over, gets himself right up into my face, and then just starts chattering away with me in his gibberish language, right? Like, life is really great right now, Dad. Isn't it awesome that we're down here together? But it's also the same thing that when he trips and falls, when his brother accidentally knocks him over, and of course the little brother implies intent, what does he do? Dad, Miles purposefully tripped me, right? And he runs over, you know, and then he's over in like 15 seconds, right? But so often we think that to be a fully formed adult is to be able to emotionally regulate ourselves outside of someone else, right? In my sadness, I just got to deal with it myself. My joy, I can just have my joy with just me, right? There's a huge disaster going on right now where people are all reading the Stoics and like, the Stoics are gonna be great for us. No, they're not. They're awful. It's not gonna go well for you, okay? Don't think that's gonna help you. It's not. We were created for others. We were created for communion. We were created to have our joy and our sorrow regulated by a parent. And that parent is our father in heaven. We see the one fully mature human being was Jesus Christ. And what do we see in his life? Every moment of it was lived in perpetual communion with his father in heaven. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is facing his greatest anguish and fear. What does he do? He cries out to dad. We often think that's a sign of weakness, right? What we see in the scripture is that to cry out to your father in the joys of life and in the sorrows of life is actually to be fully alive. To be fully alive is to be in perpetual communion with God, to live your life toward him as your ultimate goal, your ultimate aim, your ultimate purpose, your ultimate joy, to run to your Father in heaven in the hard things in life and in the joys of life. When Paul says pray without ceasing, we're always trying to like, you know, qualify that. Well, that just means this, that, and the other. Well, what it could possibly mean is that you're always supposed to be talking to God. Your Father in heaven says, come to me. Come to me. In those moments when you're confused, to be fully alive is to go to your Father in heaven. In those moments where you are in the pit of despair, to be fully alive is to go to your Father in heaven. In those moments where you are on the heights of joy, it's to go to your Father in heaven in gratitude. To be resurrected is to say that all those other stories that we tell ourselves that define our existence, that just lead us into sin, you're dead to that. Stop living as if that's your story. And this is the hardest thing, right? It's easy to say that. I'm not like trying to be blase about it, right? This is the whole life of discipleship, you know? 
Those stories are going to haunt you until the new heavens and the new earth. But the only way that they get smaller and smaller and diminished and diminished is if the true story of life with God grows bigger and bigger and bigger. My story and your story is the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, the story of always living toward God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you show us those stories in our lives that are guiding us to sin? Show us those narratives that we tell ourselves, the things that we are running from, the things that we are running towards. Unmask them, unveil them, show the evil within them and the way the devil is at work. And Lord, liberate us from them as we see more and more your goodness, your glory, your love for us. Father, would you move our feet, move our hands, move our eyes, move our mouths to run to you, to cling to you, to look to you, to cry out to you in all things. Lord, would this church, would these people be made alive to you in Christ Jesus?